0: Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here with my co-host, Mary Stone. Hi, Kate. This edition of the podcast is, well, it's a bit different from our normal podcast, as we're doing it all about one author. Uh, because before we started doing these podcasts, we talked about who would be our dream authors to interview. And there were a few names recommended by library staff that just came up again and again. And
1: one of those names was former Children's Laureate Michael Morpurgo, or should we say Sir Michael Morpurgo, as he was knighted last year. So we were over the moon when he agreed to meet up with us to talk about his latest book. Michael's written a huge number of books, well over 100, which is an amount only topped, at the moment, by Enid Blyton. His books include dozens of much-loved titles, such as War Horse,
0: which was famously and successfully adapted by the National Theatre, and by Steven Spielberg as well as Adolphus Tips, which is probably my family's favourite, Alone in the Wide, Wide Sea, and Butterfly Lion, which has just been adapted by the Chichester Festival Theatre. Uh, Like many other families, I'm sure, Michael Morpurgo's stories are very much part of my son and daughter's uh, childhood. We used to, if we were going on a family holiday, we would get a Michael Morpurgo on audiobook, and then on the long car journey, we would listen to it, and we would always end up arrived at our destination having to sit in the car and listen to the last half hour because we had to hear the end of the story.
1: His books are not books that you can just put down halfway through. If I was listening to it in a car journey, I think I'd do exactly the same. He is the master storyteller. His latest book is Boy Giant, Son of Gulliver. It's about Omar, a 12-year-old refugee from Afghanistan, and is inspired by Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. In the book, Omar is trying to find his uncle in England, but ends up on the island of Lilliput. Let's hear what Michael Morpergo had to say about the book when you met up with him. We're gonna start by hearing the man himself read from the start of the book.
2: Boy giant, chapter one. Tiny, they called me. All we knew about her was that she called herself JJ, that she spoke English that she was alone out there in her big yellow rowing boat, and that she was like a giant to all three of us, even me, a giant with a bandaged wrist and plasters on her fingers. So tell me, she said, tell me everything. I could hardly refuse, could I? I mean, this JJ had saved our lives. It was thanks only to this stranger that we were dry again, well fed, warm and rested. I mean, she went on, I want to know how it is that you're out here in the open ocean in such a small boat. Who are you? Where have you come from? I could have asked her much the same questions, but I found myself telling her our whole story. I was happy to tell her too. Not just because she had shown us such kindness, but because once I began telling her our story out loud, it somehow helped me to believe it had all really happened to me. Helped me to remember who I was, who I had become. That she would believe me, I had no doubt. After all, she had the evidence right in front of her. She could hardly take her eyes off the evidence. The three of us were there to prove it. We were the truth of our own story. I began at the beginning because without the beginning, None of it would have made sense to her, and anyway, none of it would ever have happened. I would never have had to leave home, and my life would have been another story altogether. It's quite a long story, I told her. That's fine, she said. I need to rest this wrist anyway. I can't row far like this. So I began. Where I come from is no longer my home. There was a house and a village I once called my home in Afghanistan. I had a family of my own once, not anymore. I have my name, Omar, and I have mother, but I don't know where she is. I think and I hope she may be in England with Uncle Said. I was on my way to find her. That's why we were out here in our little boat when you found us, and we found you. I don't know anymore what day or month or year it is, but I think I must now be about 16 years old. Of my beginnings, of my home, there's not much to tell. And I don't like to speak of it or think of it because it makes me sad to remember. My home was a quiet place in a peaceful town in the countryside. We lived on the edge of town. My father was a shepherd. Our flock was our livelihood. We never went hungry or thirsty. I had a little sister, Hanan. She and I were much loved in our home. We were together. We were all happy. School was school. All my friends were there. We learned our lessons, played together. But as I was always small and thin and at school I was never allowed to forget it. Tiny, they called me. Little I may have been, but I was by far the best at cricket. No one hit a ball harder. No one bowled faster. The pitch was always bumpy, but it was the same for all of us and it was fine. Everything was fine. I could read the bounce of every ball they bowled at me, see it onto the bat. I lived for my cricket and my family. Everything was good. Well, mostly. Every night I went to sleep, wishing I could score more runs the next day or take more wickets. And I prayed I would be a little taller in the morning. I would measure myself against the mark Mother had made on the wall. The next day I would often score more rounds or take more wickets or both, but I was never any taller. Hanan was still taller than me every morning, and she was two years younger than me. Then, then the war came to our town and I had other worries, more serious worries. I do not know to this day why the war came. It was on the morning of my 10th birthday, I remember that. We heard the planes in the sky and the Then the bombing began. We were in school. There was nowhere to hide, nowhere to run to. At the end of that day, our home was in ruins. Our school too, many of my friends had died. I was there when they were buried. I helped to bury them. Father died too when the planes came again the next morning. And so did most of our sheep. And then we discovered her nan was missing. We looked and we called, but we never found her. Only mother and I were left. We had nothing. No shelter, no food, no father, no sister, no daughter.
0: Can you tell us a bit about your new book, which is Boy Giant Son Boy God. Giant.
2: Um, Boy Giant grew out of, as almost all books do, various different routes. Um, the first route, an important route, is that Michael Foreman, my um, oftentimes illustrator and dear friend, Suggested to me approximately 25 years ago that we should do a retelling of Gulliver's Travels. Um, at the time, I didn't really want to be- because, of course, I knew the book well enough to know that Jonathan Swift, when he wrote it, did not write it um, for children to enjoy Lilliput and a big giant lying on the beach all pinned down. That wasn't the purpose of it. Lovely that that idea is. He wrote it and he said this in his own language, to vex people, because he felt that what was going on around him in the world was uh, corrupt, um, it was grim for vast numbers of people who had little or nothing, um, it was warlike, it was cruel, and he was having a go at the world around him and telling a sort of parable. Um, So I thought, well you can't just retell the cute part of it for children, it's been done before, and I, we, you know, we did something else. And then, I don't know, three years ago, Michael said to me, you know, we still haven't done us Travels. And I, I said, well, I know, I told you, I told you, why not? Um, and he said, well, think about it. So I was thinking about it when up on my television at some point came this image of a dead child being carried along a beach in Italy or Greece or it doesn't matter where it was. What it matters, it was a dead child, it was a dead refugee, who had, with his family, struggled to come to Europe because this was the great hope for these people. And I was very upset by that. The whole world was very upset by it. Um, and then we saw more such images, and they keep repeating themselves, and we all know the history um, in recent uh, years of this flood of people running away from hunger and starvation and war and disease, trying to find some kind of a life. And we also know, sadly, sadly, how many people in rather well-off Western Europe have turned their backs on these people. And I feel extremely uncomfortable to be part of that society. That's the first thing. So there came this need somehow to address this. And then I, in a way, I got lucky and I got unlucky. A dear friend of mine, who was a producer on the film of War Horse, said to me, look, I want to go. I'm very concerned with what's happening in the jungle in Paris, in, in, in Calais. Would you, would you like to come with us? So we went along, and we visited the jungle. 3,000 people sort of locked in, shut in, right behind barbed wire, patrolled by police with guns, and, and living in at most filthy, stinking, ghastly conditions. And they were all young boys, all of them, away from their mums and dads, and living in this ghastly, hellish limbo. I sat in a tent with a whole group of these people, and I couldn't speak their language, they couldn't speak mine. But I don't know why it happened. We all sort of held hands in this tent, and we started singing songs. They sang their songs, we sang our songs. It was an expression of solidarity, and I felt it very deeply when it was there. And then shortly afterwards, lovely, lovely story, it also comes into Boy Giant, really, in a funny way. Um, another dear friend of mine had um, approached us because we live in the middle of Devon, and um, she had had this idea. She used to visit asylum-seeking refugees, mostly from Afghanistan, who were being cooped up in sort of hostile accommodation in Croydon, um, because they were wretched, they were in despair, they were uh, depressed. And she was searching her mind for something, something to lift their spirits. And then she suddenly discovered there was something they all had in common, these boys. They all love cricket. So she arranged this cricket tour of um, these Afghan boys to leave Croydon, get in a bus, come down, arrange it with us to the West Country, to where we live and in a big house, which we have down the road for where the children who come to farms for city children, my wife's charity on the farm, beautiful place, lovely old Victorian house looking out towards Dartmoor. And they were gonna stay there, it was during the holiday time so they'd come and stay there. And I arranged with my local village team which was run from the pub in Iddersley, that little village. Um, I said, would you like to put up a team to play against these Afghan boys? They said, oh yeah, I think they thought they were gonna win easily, well they didn't. <laughs> um, I watched these Afghans play and they played with unbelievable conviction, hit the ball harder, ran faster, bowled harder, and they beat Italy, and then they went on and played four other matches. They won every single one of them. They came back the next year and did the same thing. And the pride they got out of it, the joy they got out of it, actually playing with us, you know. We were in this strange country, and we played the same game as them. It was the most beautiful, beautiful moment. And they would say things like they'd be sort of having tea in the, middle, in the interval and looking out towards the hills of Dartmoor and said, oh, it's just like Afghanistan you know, the mountains of Afghanistan. It's all in their heads, this link between their country and our country. Mm. So I was profoundly moved by that and I thought, ah, ah. Maybe there is purpose now in writing this story, that I will, yes, use all, the, all some of the wonderful things that Jonathan Swift wrote, but I will use it for the same purpose, um, yeah. which was, is to vex people. I don't particularly want people to enjoy this. I'd love them to read the story and want to know what happens, but I also want them to realize and empathize with them what it is these people go through, and um, so I created this wonderfully sort of Shangri-La ideal of um, Lilliput, um, which of course had been visited by the real Gulliver 250 years before, and who'd left the seeds of their society there, the society which rejected selfishness and uh, belligerence, and uh, where the ethic was to live for each other. And I thought, well, this is the only way we're ever going to survive as a people and as a species is to is to do that. So yeah, create that society and have uh, a refugee of today from Afghanistan who plays cricket washed up on the beach of Lilliput and sort of see what happens. Mm. So there we are. That's the roots of it. I tend to inhabit every character I possibly can. That's why you'll find in many of my books that the main character's called Michael. And even in Butterfly Nine, it's called Michael Morpurgo. It's ridiculous. I can't of the time to... <laughs> There's something about being inside a story enables you to inhabit it, and with every story I write, I try to do that. And if I if I don't if, if I don't do it completely, I, I never think the story really works. It's the only way I can make something work is to be inside it, to act it. I think deep, deep down in my genes, my DNA, I'm an actor. My mummy was an actor. My daddy was an actor. I didn't become an actor, sadly, but I think. To inhabit a story while you're speaking it, as they do, as I saw last night on stage here, mm. The Butterfly Land. They have to believe it before you're going to believe it. The actors are not convincing, and you know they're just acting. It doesn't work. If a writer is just writing to make a book, and the reader knows it, it doesn't work. You just have to live it. You look the person in the eye through the writing or, you, or, the, or the stage play and you mean it you know you really mean it it's it's not a plaything. and um whether it's old retellings or or new stories i do the same
0: at the heart of this story the story of um, boy giant is the power of generosity and kindness and the importance of building bridges to join us rather than walls to separate us and of course as you were saying the power of cricket so is Is that sense something you feel it's really important to remind people of?
2: Yes, I suppose I do. I mean, the wonderful thing is that cricket does exactly that. Um, All great sport does that. It brings people together. Great culture does that. Books do that. And all these bridge-building cultural exercises um, are really important. uh, We we live in a world which is fast falling apart at the moment. doesn't seem to know that the glue that holds us together is what matters, that's the whole thing. And day after day, we get, we get reminded that, not just here, but all over the world, people are finding reasons to break apart and break apart. And Where we work as a wonderful species, a creative species, is when we find common cause in some way or other, we find common understanding. Um, and I love it. So for instance, when I hear that the, the play of War Horse is going to China, or it's going to Japan, or it's going to Australia, what I'm joyful about is that I know that something which began its place in the in the middle of Devon spreads around the world. It doesn't. They're not telling you actually. Everything is Britain is wonderful. It's not. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a film about war, the most terrible thing a man ever created for herself or himself, and we were part of that. We were at the heart of the whole business of the first and the second world war. I write about it a lot because I'm very engaged with this whole subject, and. Um, it's important we're not portraying ourselves in some propagandist way, but that we are passing on the message of common humanity, mm. that there's longing for peace, um, which actually we all have until it's perverted by uh, other people. So, um, yeah, it's a common, common theme, and I'm, you know, in boy giant, it's as strong as ever, I think.
0: Yeah, and it's like, yeah, that we are more alike than we are different.
2: We are, and I think, I think the thing that you know, it's really important, too, is we all get to know this, Omar, you know, and uh, we get to know him, he's not a migrant, he's not a, mm. an asylum seeker, he's a son, he's a brother, he's a person, mm. and uh, we get to know him as such. Mm. And that's where we've gone so wrong, we talk about these people, if mm. they're another kind of people. And they're just like us, they're the same, they have. Um, they may live in places where there are mountains and rocks and the houses aren't built the same, but they play cricket. I mean, I know that's sounds silly, but there is something that they share with us. And of course they share a love of family, mm. uh, a love of country, maybe their religion as well. There's all sorts of things we share together. And um, I, just, I just feel that's the most important thing to talk about with young people at the moment who are aware that they don't know any actually than we do, uh, the complexities of what's going on at the moment. But they're aware that these shifting sands, and they're very unsettled by that. I think um, it's not an accident that so many children are suffering from... Mm mental breakdown and illness uh, at the moment. The society is unsettled. People around them are unsettled. Nothing is, you can't sort of trust and believe in things. I mean, when I was growing up, it was not a, not an ideal society by any manner means. It was just post-war, and everyone was pretty miserable, to be honest. It was cold. It was gray. Um, but, there was a but. And the but was that we all played together, you know? We didn't have a machine to go to at all. You could listen to the radio if you really wanted to, and most of it didn't. You did this thing called playing out. And you played out in the street, and there were hardly cars, and so you, the street was yours. And the bomb sites were yours to play. And there was all sorts of ways where we all joined in together. We got to know each other really well. Not to love each other, but to know each other. And that was really important growing up. And we got to know a little bit of history because of were photographs on the mantelpiece of people who died in the Second World War, and we saw the grown-ups being upset by all that so we were connected to what had come before we didn't just dismiss it as being unimportant I think belonging is maybe the most important thing we've got to feel about each other and I mean what what's really interesting about the whole migrant question at the present moment we can call them that just for the sake of this podcast these people who have nowhere to be who need to find somewhere and they come to us from all corners of the earth and there is this sense in which, this is the first time this has happened, isn't it? Terrible! This you know, migrant wave of migrants coming. You know, why can't they? I mean, if we're going to say but an American president saying "Go back to where you come from," it's in people's head. The very fact that someone in that kind of authority could say such a thing, not just about women or black women, but about anyone who is coming to your country, when your country, America, is packed, it doesn't have an existence without its migrants. You know, that is who they are. And actually, we don't, maybe don't like to think it, but that's exactly who we are as well. I mean, superficially, let's examine the royal family. Where do we think these people come from, you know? Were they sort of, um, was it from Bouddhousia, these people? No, they came from Germany, from Austria, from France, from Belgium. They are our kings and queens, Europe. And you think, "What what are we fussing about now? You know, it's just extraordinary. My grandfather came over here. He was a migrant. When he came over, he was Belgian. And then we you know you think of the the wonderful lady in our world who wrote the Tiger Who Came to Tea, Judith Carr, where did she come from? She's German. She's a Jew. And she came over here at a time when actually people here thought it was really important to look after such people. Didn't look after them well enough. Of course we didn't, and we didn't look after nearly enough of them. But this woman came here as a little girl. She adopted this country. This country adopted her. She felt she belonged. We most certainly wanted her to belong. And she's become this iconic storyteller for the English. And she wrote in English. She painted in English. Did she? Heck. She wrote her stories for everyone. And the lovely thing was that in her old age, she was going back to Germany and talking to the people there and then coming back here and talking to people here. She was a migrant, Mm. you know? And that's what people forget, they're Mm. real people, and they make either the best of their lives or not the best of their lives, just like the rest of us. You know,
0: There seems to be this common thread Mm. through your work as a writer, but also in your past life as a teacher, and the work you do now with your, your, well, the work you've been doing since the 70s with your wife, Claire, for the um, Farms of City Children, that you want to, you feel it's important to make a difference if you can, and, to change people's lives where you can. And is this something <laughs> you find as a, as a writer that you almost have a responsibility to do?
2: Most people, I think, who grew up in the time that I grew up and who were uh, middle class, we had enough, also had this notion that um, it was part of your function to help other people. Not because you were a desperately strong Christian, it was just what um, people did. And so it wasn't just middle classes. I think everyone thought this was what how we were going to, to, to play it. And then at some point, um, it mustn't be too political, but at some point people started saying there is no such thing as society, that, you know, you work for yourself, you get rich for yourself, and suddenly the things changed. The whole um, the way the boat was pointing, you know, changed. And uh, it's it's gone on since then. So we now have this very angry society where those who have are doing fine, they do what they like, and um, those who haven't are simmering because... It is not being shared out, mm-hmm. this this culture, this extraordinary wealth. I mean, people endlessly go on and say, do you know, we are the fifth or sixth richest economy in the world, and they say with great pride. Well, it's something to be proud about, providing it's shared out. And when it comes to the planet, it's the same thing. We've just gone blindly on, doing what we want to do, exploiting it, whether it's the animals or the sea or the air or whatever. That's what we've been doing, mm-hmm. enjoying it. Oh, and my generation, I mean, I'm, the, I'm to blame. My particular generation in my 70s now have probably had the best 70 years in terms of having a comfortable existence, doing what we want, going where we like, but in the most extraordinary way keeping ourselves blinkered from the consequences of what it is that we're doing. And it's the young are now telling us. Mm-hmm. And, and they're yeah. quite right to remind us. And we, we, we have jolly, well, got to put it right. But I really think what the real shame is that the, my previous generation left us a world of freedom, they left us a world where you, where they got us out of this hole of fascism and all this sort of stuff, and they were really saying to us, "Here is your world, make the best of it." And we haven't made the best of it, and we're handing on to our next generation. The degree of difficulty is just unbelievable. That they're going to have to face, and it's it's been us. I don't blame them for being angry.
3: No, yeah, I
0: know, I know. I'm I'm looking at my children's generation, thinking, "Thank goodness for them," because mm-hmm. um, they do seem to have their heads screwed on. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. it's
2: come. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing, and hope. Hope does spring eternal, but Mm. hope won't be any use at all unless it's fed by the intellect and emotional clarity of some sort or other, and books help that. That's what books do. They enable us to think. They push us into places to understand. So when we read about an Afghan refugee, maybe for the first time, you begin to think, hang on, hang on, I know this person. You know, he's actually like me. And you begin to empathize with other people from other countries and and a different age and a different time. And all that's really, really Mm. important to us, I think.
0: Yeah, the power of books to make us be much more able to empathise with people. Yes, and it's
2: much more important. I mean, I know we've got muddle up with stories and stuff. It is more important than film. Um, because film serves it all up for you. You know, there way someone directs it wonderfully and acts it beautifully. And
0: they play and the right music. They just
2: play absolutely. Yeah. And, all, and you respond to what they are telling you. Books aren't like that. Books you have to make this intellectual effort for. And and plays the same. You know, last night we were watching this absurd situation of puppets on a stage. Lions, it was Africa one moment, and then it was Sussex the next moment. It just kept changing, and you believed everything. Mm. But you had to do the believing, you know? They had to convince you just like a writer does. But the intellectual effort you had to make is so much deeper and so much more profound. That's the truth of it.
0: He was an absolute delight to talk to, such a lovely man. And there were loads of things I'd have loved to have talked to him about, but just didn't have time. OK, so what kind of things did you want to talk to him about? Well, about the way he writes, because he talked about the way he gets so involved and becomes the characters when he's writing. But when he wrote at a desk, he used to give himself terrible back problems because he'd be all hunched up and tense over his desk. So at the advice of his friend, Ted Hughes, what a great name to have as a friend, he started writing Standing Up, um, which was apparently how Ted Hughes used to write. But then, of course, he got problems with his feet. So then he chanced on a photograph of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who is uh, Michael Morpurgo's literary hero. And he saw that he was writing in bed um, with the book propped up on his knees. And he thought, well, if that's good enough for Robert Louis Stevenson, then it's good enough for me. So he started writing in bed. First of all, he did it in his bed, in his house, but apparently he kept getting um, ink and muddy boots all over the bedding and his wife said, no, 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 that's no good. So now he's got this tea house in his garden with a special writing bed inside
1: it. Oh my God, I think I want a special writing bed. I'm not sure I'd get anything done, but it just sounds cool. I'm going to my special writing bed but you haven't done any writing. Yeah, but no, I will. (laughs)
0: Yeah, had a good nap. Had a good nap, that's what I would probably do. But I'd also like to hear him talk about the journey to become a writer because it wasn't straightforward at all. Yeah, he was a bit of a drifter at first, wasn't
1: he? Um, I read that he hadn't been an avid reader as a child and didn't really know what he wanted to do or even if he had any talent or anything. He went into the army, then he became a teacher, which he absolutely loved. Um, And it was there that he discovered he could tell stories, which caught the interest of children in his classroom. His head teacher at the time heard him telling one of these stories and got him to type it up, which they then passed on to a publisher.
0: And that was it. I'd have also liked to ask him about, in his most recent book, um, Boy Giant, the quote right at the start of the book, because it's such a great quote, it is... um, be not inhospitable to strangers lest they be angels in disguise I knew it sounded familiar but I had to look it up and it's by uh, a man called George Whitman who ran the Shakespeare and Company bookshop in Paris um, which many readers and writers will know and love and revere Uh, and the quote is still up above the doorway in one of the rooms if you go there so that's worth looking out for oh wow that is actually really beautiful Normally, in this
1: part of the episode, we visit a Hampshire library um, to get some book recommendations, but having Michael Morpurgo as a guest got us talking about our own different favourite books of his, Um, and we decided for a change to make our recommendations from our guest authors' huge choice of titles. So I met up with um, three young women who grew up reading his books, they are Aisha, Hattie and Francesca who all work with me and Kate in our team and we all got together to have a talk about the Michael Morpurgo books that they recommend and why. With me today are three members of the office team at Hampshire Libraries, Hattie, Aisha and Francesca. So not the people you might meet when you visit your library, but all working for the service and all equally as passionate. And they're all keen Michael Morpurgo
4: fans. Aisha, I'm going to turn to you first. What was your book selection? So I chose The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips and um, it was really interesting actually because it's talking about a bit of history that I didn't really know anything about which is just before the D-Day landings, I think kind of actually a few years before, I guess the British Army knew that they were planning these attacks. And so they took a lot of like beach seaside towns in um, the south of England and basically they had to be evacuated by all of the um, citizens that lived there because they needed um, empty beach kind of cities and towns to practice these landings so what happened was very quickly a number of towns across England had to be evacuated for the army and this book follows one of those towns I think it was Slapton and that's evacuated I think they have seven weeks or so to get out and the story follows a girl called Lily she has a friend called Barry who's come down from London and it's their adventures as they have to evacuate and Lily has a cat who does not want to evacuate and Keeps wanting to try and go back into the um, now abandoned town, and it kind of follows that and it explores the impact of the war and the kind of relationship between citizens and the army and stuff. It's a really fascinating book because it talks about a really interesting piece of history, but with the kind of lovely character of Lily, who's this really strong, really feisty young girl, who's a great character, and her cat, which is also lovely. And I'm a big cat fan, so. I, I just think it was a really lovely book and really well done.
1: So what was your favourite bit about it?
4: Um, I think it, it just does a lot of things at the same time. Um, so kind of before reading it, it looks like it might be a kind of book all about an animal, which is a really nice way to get people interested because I think particularly younger readers often might have a real attachment to a pet and love animals and it's a nice way of exploring. Um, and by kind of going into it that way, you don't realise necessarily that actually it's about a much bigger thing than just an animal. But for me, I think Lily was my real standout. She's such a great character. And I think actually across all his books, he tends to have these really strong female characters, which I think is really great. So I think Lily for me in the book was, she was a great character. I really liked reading her.
1: I think one of the things that we that is really c- quite clear about Michael Morpurgo mm-hmm. is he tends to use quite similar Ways into his narratives um, and using animals as a way into a story is something that we see time and again. So we've got it here with Adolphus Tips, we've got the cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be talking about it again in the next uh, book, um, Butterfly Lion, we've Got a Lion. Obviously, there's Warhorse. Do you think that's, that appeals to adults as well as kids?
4: I think absolutely. Um, I'm a real animal lover myself, um, and actually, I never read Adolphus Tips when I was little, so I've actually only just read it um, recently, but as an adult, I still really enjoyed it. And I knew I'd like it because, as I say, I'm a real cat person. I think in some ways his books, they work for adults and children because they allow you to kind of get back into that childhood frame of mind a bit. The the writing doesn't try to be kind of pretentious. It just is a lovely story. And he writes really beautifully and tells stories simply but really effectively. And I think as an adult, you're able to appreciate how children would read it, but also read it with maybe the knowledge that you have and kind of understand the nuances and the things behind the scenes. But I think an animal is a really great way to do that because it gives any reader of any age something to be able to chat about and to discuss. And it's often something that can be quite an emotive thing. I think people feel quite strongly about animals. So. It's an
1: emotional hook, isn't exactly. it? Yes, I think very so. clever.
4: Also for children, often their first kind of knowledge of an, an of something dying is maybe a pet. So it's a good way of getting that emotional hook and then being able to teach people about the history or whatever he's discussing in the book so I think it's very effective.
1: Francesca you read this book what did you think?
4: The things that
5: stood out with me the most with Adolphus Tips was the fact that Asia's briefly mentioned on it is the fact that you're learning something new about history as well and I also really like the friendships that were in the book we have the friendship between the townie Barry and then the local um, Lily and they become pretty much brother and sister at the end of the day he moves in with her but then it also explores the friendship between Lily and Addie the the I think it's an American um, soldier who's come in to help with the evacuation and all the D Day landings and stuff and their friendship kind of evolves throughout the book and I particularly liked seeing that because, of course, with the ending as well, it was a nice little yeah. ribbon on top. We the won't tie, give yeah. away the ending. We won't give but away the yeah. ending, no. But I think that was the thing that stood out for me, was the friendships that he'd written about. That's what stuck the most.
1: Let's Let- move on to Francesca now to talk about the next book, um, which is Butterfly Lion, is that right? Yes, The
5: Butterfly Lion. This book um, has very fond memories for me. It was one of my favourites growing up. It was the book that was on my bookshelf that I would always reach for first. Um It has such full memories, and I loved it, and I loved reading it again, now as a 23-year-old woman. Um, So the book is basically about um, a young boy called Bertie, um, and he lives in South Africa on a farm with his mum and dad. It's just him. He's very, very lonely. And one day his his dad went out on the game and killed a lion, um, which obviously isn't very pleasant, and he knew that there was a lion cub out there that was just orphaned. So he goes out to try and find this white lion cub, which of course is very rare. And you know he brings him in, he finds him, he actually saves him from, I think it was hyenas or something, um, and he brings him in and they keep him and the friendship again blossoms. And in a sense it's kind of like the lion saves him from all the loneliness and they become best friends and inseparable at the end of the day. And then his parents unfortunately want to move him away to England, to Salisbury, Wiltshire, to go to a boarding school. and. Therefore, he has to sell the lion to a circus, which he was very unhappy about because he just didn't think that the lion would get treated very well and he's his best friend at the end of the day. Um, So we fast forward a few years. He hates boarding school. You know, he's so so miserable, so lonely, and he tries to run away. Um, So, yeah, he runs away from the boarding school um, and he, on his adventures, meets a girl called Nilly. um, And he tells her all about this white lion cub that he has and how one day he's going to find him and of course Millie doesn't believe him um, but they build up a budding friendship over kites and all fun things and they sneak every Sunday on the top of the hill to meet each other um, and it's quite a sweet little friendship that starts to blossom and then as of course as everyone ages he then goes into the war gets given the Victoria Cross. So fast forward into the future Bertie and Millie reunite in a hospital in France and then they go on a adventure together looking for, of course, the white lion cub, and we hear the story from a different person's point of view, we're hearing it from the future, um, and it's wrapped up in a nice ending, which is one of my favourite parts of the book.
1: This is one of the things that really strikes me about Michael Morpago books, or the ones I've read anyway, I mean, he has written many, many books, as we, um, as we know, but All three of the books that we discussed today fit this kind of format where he puts a story within a story. It starts with one narrative that then veers off into a story usually in the past and then comes back to the point where we started the book and it's wrapped up in that fashion. I think that's quite an interesting way to tell a story, but do you find that maybe he uses this too much as a technique?
3: What do you think, Hattie? It's a good way of playing around with you know, chronology and, and timing and future and past, kind of having those moments that interplay with each other and, and often that cycle back to the beginning. Having these kind of cycles and framing devices that place stories within stories, it's a really great way of kind of cementing that narrative in your mind.
4: I think as, as well it's a real testament to the power of storytelling and how stories kind of sharing of stories is the way that we remember history or remember or explore things that happened. I think as Hattie was saying it's a really interesting way of framing it but it's it feels then more like a story that you might be told by a family member and I think often these stories are from maybe a grandchild hearing about a grandparent and I think that's such a lovely thing and I think sometimes we lose that in this day and age it's kind of everything is live in the moment and kind of always looking to the future but I think a lot of his books are about celebrating the past and exploring the stories that are at our fingertips you know your grandparents might have some incredible stories your neighbor your you know friends things like that and I think it's it's celebrating rather than creating a story out of nothing it's finding those things that actually happened and for children it's a really lovely way of saying you know maybe speak to your grandparents about things that might have happened and it's it's a lovely kind of framing device I think in terms of yeah, just the kind of the power of storytelling in a way.
1: That really fits with what um, Michael himself said in his interview when he was chatting to Kate about how those relationships when his generation were growing up with, with the parents who lived through the war and the photographs that they saw and those conversations they had, they could keep that connection to the past mm-hmm. and he was... Reflecting on the fact that we have devices giving us sort of instant gratification now, and the way cinema kind of leads the narrative and to think and feel in a certain way that you're kind of, you sort of told what to think and feel, um, whereas you have to do a little bit more work with books. But he helps you with these narrative styles. What do you think?
5: Um, I totally agree with um, Asia and Hattie. And one thing that I've kind of noticed with the story within the story is that in quite a few of his books. It's also told from a child's point of view and an adult's point of view, which is obviously quite nice. As When I was a child, I could relate looking through the younger person's eyes and kind of more relating and understanding a bit better. But now reading it as I was older, I kind of relate more to the older person as well. So it's quite nice to see it from two different ages perspectives, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the thing about these books is that they're so rich for adults and children, and you think, what a beautiful um, book to read, any of these books really, to read to a child. Mm. So I think there's something that everyone can get out yeah, of them.
0: absolutely.
1: Okay. Mm. We've been talking about Butterfly Lion by Michael Morpurgo, and that was Francesca's choice. Now, moving over to you, Hattie, and you're going to tell us about Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea.
3: It's a story of two halves, really, because it's this childhood in Australia from, from the perspective of Arthur, who's I think about six years old or seven years old when he's starting uh, on on the voyage. And then the second half of the book is told from his daughter's perspective many years later as she embarks upon her own voyage to kind of reclaim a lost family member. I don't think it's like the other two we've mentioned. It's not a hugely heartwarming story from the first impression when you look on it. It tackles some really difficult themes like abuse and... um, sort of imprisonment in a way and it's not always an easy read, it's not got those really heartwarming elements that maybe be a characteristic of a Michael Walpurgo tale. He's, uh, he's um, adopted by, yeah. uh, he's one of many like a group of children that's
1: adopted by this couple mm-hmm. and they think they might be going to this new family but actually what well, it's it's slave labour basically on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Australia so it's not the paradise that some of these children thought that they might be yeah going to when they were on the boat I mean alone on a wide wide sea is a fascinating book because it deals with a moment of history of British history mm-hmm. of sending children to Australia for apparently a better life this went on for quite a long quite a long time and it was mm-hmm. a lot of children that were orphaned that were sent away um, I mean you look back now and you just think what were people thinking that this was this was a way to treat young vulnerable people but what a fascinating way to inform people now of what happened in the past because this book yes it is incredibly challenging but it's still a children's book it has Mm. the language is is perfect for children the way they deal with difficult issues it doesn't go into too much grim detail Mm. it it does it just enough to tell you what's happening without I think being too upsetting
3: it's an exploration of, of a history that, I mean, I personally, I didn't ever learn about this in school or anything. My only source of learning about this aspect of our you know country's heritage, maybe a darker part of our country's heritage would be through reading this. And I think that's a really great thing for children to be able to get to grips with.
4: It's kind of quite noble of Mapago to take something that is a really difficult t- subject and not kind of shy away from it and mm. be honest and say, this happened. But here's this lovely kind of story from it and how kind of heartwarming and how kind of amazing if you will can people be you know people carry on even if it feels like everything's gone against them um so i think like hattie said it is quite different but i think actually it's a a really great choice for adults and children.
1: and there are some lighter moments, um in particular, the middle section of the book. I don't want to give too many too many details away, but uh, the character of Megs Malloy, mm. um who adopts the yeah. two boys um, sort of, menagerie she, of animals with her, exactly with it. her with her many, many animals. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell me just a little bit about some of those sort of standout moments from the book for you, Hattie?
3: Yeah, well, I mean that that that's sort of the whimsical element that i was I was going to mention earlier. It's kind of, what could be better as a child than being taken in when you've never felt at home anywhere before, never felt parented before, going into a haven where you're saved and you're completely surrounded by animals of, of these sort of varying personalities. You've got this wombat that just stinks to high heaven who, um, who he lives under some... Hats. He to steal hats. <laughs> loves to steal hats. Just what a, what a character. And, 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 you know... It, without giving too much away, he's not in the book for that long a time but you really get a sense of this environment as a as a really defining, character defining moment for these two boys who who kind of escape to the sanctuary where they, they learn so much and they're given
5: so much as well. Just briefly talking about the part, the middle part, with all the animals and them being at Megs Malloy's, when I was reading the book it kind of gave me hope for them as a reader mm. um, and I just wanted to read on to kind of find out what does happen to them because you start off the book in quite a dark place and then when you get to this middle part you think oh actually everything's going to be okay for these characters, I want it to be okay. So it just kind of grasped me that little bit more that I just wanted to finish it so that I knew what happened to them. Yeah. It was definitely a page turner. Yeah,
3: definitely. And I think, I think I mean, and uh, we, we've barely spoken about the second half of the book which I think is equally as hopeful, equally as important and equally as sort of inspiring really because you you have this this voyage that Aliana takes on her own she's another one of these female characters that's just incredibly strong incredibly strong willed and very witty and interesting and defined as well as a character which i think is is really hard to do um and and he he does this through a really interesting sort of um communication device of 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 emails back and forth and then and then her real feelings under the emails, which is quite a complex thing for a, for a children's book, but he does it really well and it, it comes across very clearly. There's the the big motif of the albatross, which is, you know, it's almost, it's a nod to, like, classic literature in a way that, that m- might fly over, if you pardon the pun, a lot of children's heads. But um, th- there's also the theme of the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, there's the theme of London bridges falling down, and all these things, they connect and they... They cycle back and forth and, th- and I just think that's so clever. I think that's a really clever thing to do, to do well and to weave in all this history and to weave in all this sort of literary elements. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a really fantastic book. I definitely recommend it to adult readers and younger readers alike.
4: To take something like Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner and make it accessible to children and kind of make it fun because it's quite, it's a, it's a tough yeah. kind of big epic poem and it's you know full of allegory and stuff but to take that and make it fun and still make it relevant and make it work for children it, I just think it's it's hugely impressive as a author and it's I think it's a really cool book so
1: okay so we've been talking about three Michael Morpurgo books Butterfly Lion, Alone on a Wide Wide Sea and The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips all published by HarperCollins, all of which are available from hampshire libraries and through our free download service borrow books. and if you've read any of the books we've talked about today let us know what you think by clicking on the link in our podcast blurb where you'll find details of all the books discussed thank you for listening to love your library the hampshire libraries podcast Don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear other interviews and book recommendations. If you particularly enjoyed this episode and liked the way that we concentrated on just one writer and included the book recommendations of the author that we spoke to, then let us know because we can do more of that in future. Um, If you tell us what you like, we'll make sure that we give you what you want to listen to.
0: Yeah, we always love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts. And we'll always read and respond to any questions or suggestions you've got. So please send them in. And do let us know if you've read and enjoyed any of the books that we've talked about. It would be great if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people find us. Don't forget to come and see us.
1: You'll always be welcomed, whether you're getting advice for your next book, attending an event or taking part in one of our many clubs. The best thing you can do to support your local library
0: is to use it. I'm Mary Stone and I'm Kate Price McCarthy.